So pray with me and then let's go right into the word, okay? Father, thank you for the beauty of your word and for the sweetness of fellowshipping with you and enjoying each other. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you draw us together and make us one in you. Thank you, Lord, that that we can learn so much from this chapter. And please help us to do so. On this cold, rainyish Tuesday night in November 2016, we pray to encounter you in a very fresh and hot way. That you would do so much more than inform us, but rather to transform us tonight. Renew our minds, Lord, please. And in that, Lord, I pray that today we would find ourselves in your arms where we belong. May your word burst open and come alive for each of us. May we tonight find ourselves in this place where we are so drawn into you, so right with you. Clear on your love for us, clear on your call for us. May we have so much fun in your word and redeem every second, I pray. By the power of your Holy Spirit now, interface with us in the most transforming of ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, or whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out. Excuse me. So they set it out on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, and Uzzah and Ahil, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And as they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God, the heel went before the ark. And David and all his house, all of the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of wood, on harps and on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cisterns and on timbrels or cymbals, cymbals. And when they came to Nahum's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, to took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there before the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah, which, by the way, means outbreak against Uzzah, to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was. When those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. 
Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised them in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people of the Lord, or blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people and among the whole multitude of Israel, both men, women and men, a piece of, to everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of, of Saul, came to, out to meet David and said, Oh, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of those base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Dun, dun, dun. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful chapter. And again, we just pray now, may your word burst open and come alive and may we be captivated in it. And Lord, just ignite our minds and our hearts and our spirits to engage with you and to be so wrapped up in this, I pray, that we learn everything you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I would say tonight as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Now, our pretext was Second Samuel chapter 5, verses 22 to 26. Remember that last week where David had two battles to fight. They were both with the same group of people. They were both in the same area. And yet both of the battle tactics or stratagems, if you will, were very different from each other. And what we saw in that was the necessity, the, how essential it was to stay current in the battle. And we see how important it is to see, all right, Lord, it's a similar battle. I'm familiar with this temptation. I'm familiar with this struggle. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm familiar with this challenge. Uh, this is not an uncommon problem. This is not, an, uh, I'm not, this is not an unfamiliar struggle. This is even a place I'm used to being challenged at. And yet with each of those, we stand with the Lord and we learn from growing how at the beginning the Lord may allow us to jump and run into the battle, but in the be ultimately, as He becomes the Lord of our lives, we learn to get behind Him. And as we get behind Him, we watch Him fight the battle and we come in and clean up the spoils. And that becomes really, again, our pretext for this. The whole idea is how important it is to stay current with God as He leads us into these battles. Now, we don't even realize the fact that there's going to be two battles in this particular chapter. I mean, one of them is going to be regards to doing things properly. And the other, of course, with the domestic problem of David's wife, Nemechal. But what we learn from this chapter is that not only are we to stay current, but we are also to stay rooted. You see, there's something about trying to stay current that could actually have you following the world's kind of style. It's fashion. And we can get to the place where we allow the world to define us for the sake of trying to be relevant and trying to be common or popular or, or trying to be in a way that we engage so we can be cool among our peers. 
And what happens is if we don't stay rooted in who we are first and foremost in the Lord, in his truth, in his word, what we're going to find is we're going to be like somebody tossed about in the water where it doesn't matter, like whatever the fashion is, we just kind of sway with it. And some of you might remember what that was like before you knew the Lord, where it was just like whatever the hot thing was, you were running to it. And if that hot thing was something intellectual, then you were smart. And if the hot thing was something fashionable, well, then you were dapper. You were, you know, you were smart in that way. Or whatever the case is. And you get to this place where after a while, you don't even know who you are because you're so busy trying to fashion you into someone likable among the people around you. But what we learn in this chapter is, is that you can do everything contemporary, but without having a decent rooting in God's truth. Death is going to arise even in the midst of the most huge and the most seemingly sincere worship services like we see here. Let me give you a few verses that God uses to actually challenge us in that particular direction. In Deuteronomy twenty-seven seventeen, he tells us, Cursed is the one who moves his, his neighbor's landmarks. In Job 24, 2, Job speaks about wicked people we see there, and it says that some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and they feed on them. And it's an interesting thought that somehow the same people who are moving landmarks are the same ones who are stealing sheep. And not only are they stealing sheep, but they're eating those sheep. Of course, we can, we're immediately brought to John 10 where Jesus says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and life more abundant, which of course is the other side to that. In Proverbs 22:28, it says, don't remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. We'll see that again, I think, in Proverbs 23:10, And in Hosea 5:10, God actually uses that as sort of a, if you will, to trash talk. And he says that the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Now, don't miss what's going on here. What God is telling us is those things that God has established, those things that are set and say, this is the boundaries, are things that God says, these are not to be moved. When God establishes them, and that doesn't mean you can't be current, but there's an issue of being current when you never forsake the landmarks to try to move those somehow to try to actually be relevant to a world around. The issue is not how irrelevant the church is to the people. The issue is how irrelevant the people are to God. That's really the issue. And if we try to become more like the drowning, how in the world are they going to know that we're lifeguards? Now, I saw this interesting report once about an elementary school, a primary school in America, where the people did a psychology experiment on kids, nonetheless. And the idea of it is they put up these fences, and these fences were, in essence, about three meters, eight, nine feet tall. And they had put them around the periphery, if you will, of the playground. And then they removed them, and they took note of the way that the kids played. Now, when they actually took, the, took away these particular fences, the kids played within the first half to third of the area. They never went towards the edges. They stayed in this very small area because they didn't feel safe anywhere near the edges. But the moment they put up that fence, the kids played to the fence. They hung on the fence. They, they threw things at the fence. They spun around on the fence. They did all kinds of things. The fence was such a clear border that they felt safe enough to know that this is where it's safe. On the other side of this is where it's not. Understand scripture does not confine us. What it does is it gives us freedom because if what we really want to do is please God, we kind of know God says this is as far as you go. And if we want to mess around with those things and start saying, you know, I know this is what God says, but I kind of have another idea. I'd rather do it this way. Well, you kind of get the idea this is a bad idea, and we see that in our scripture here. Now, it starts with this. 
I remind you that David now has been given the kingdom, all of the kingdom, not just the tribe of Judah, not just Benjamin popping in, if you will. Now all 12 tribes have in essence said, you are the king. And as they've now surrendered, if you will, dominion to David as the king, the first thing that David does is he starts, if you remember, is he starts to get in a covenant with the people. So he wants a relationship. And then he moves the kingdom north to the northernmost part of his particular tribe, Judah. And he does that so, in essence, he can centralize the government. So it isn't just like this South London boys kind of thing. He wants to make sure that everybody now is gathered together there so that everyone feels like the king is accessible. Now what we have is David now having made a landmark, David now setting a center, if you will, for all of it. And again, we talked about it in regards to our own lives as Christians, making Jesus the center of our lives. What would it be like if Jesus was really at the center where he really belonged? Not he revolved around my whims and my will, but rather that I revolve around his. And and so as he takes the center, it's like the next thing he's wanting to do is want to make sure that we see that the presence of God is to be fervent and fluent in our lives. But David here is going to do it the wrong way at first. Now, as it is the case, notice what it says in verse 1. David gathered the choice men of Israel 30,000. By the way, we'll actually see this particular thing when we notice, by the way, back in First uh, Samuel, when Saul went to actually gather all of the people to fight at kiriath to deliver the people back at the beginning of Saul's reign. What he found is that as he gathered the people together, he found that there were 30,000 fighting men of Israel, which are of Judah, which is interesting because they all seem here to be ready as well. So there's 30,000 men he took, takes with him from Judah. David arose with the people, and they were, they were with him from a place we read here called Baal Judah to bring up the ark of God, whose name, is, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Now, in our first couple of verses, what we read is David has the very best idea. He wants to do a really good thing. This is a great idea. And sometimes you can have the best idea, but do it in the worst way. And understand, God who looks at the heart often can see that what you really want is something great. You're just kind of a doofus about how you want to come about it. And sometimes we can look and we can quickly condemn someone's methodology because it just seems really kind of lame or stupid. But really, in the end of it all, if we were like the Lord, we would be looking and saying, well, what's your heart behind this? How can we do this right? Now, what David wants to do is he wants to take this ark. Now, it tells us, by the way, there were all these people that he gathered with him at a place called Baal Judah. That's a really concerning thing to me, and it's a hint of what's to come later. Because Baal, I remind you, was the name of the Canaanite god. It means master. And we could say, well, the master of Judah, and they just kind of adopted the word, but they already had words for God. So it just seems really concerning to me that this name will appear. It's the only time in Scripture we see it as this. But did you notice the focus in verses 2 and 3, in the simplest sense, well, verse 2, is not on the ark, but on the person who dwells there. It tells us the ark of God, who is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. The focus wasn't on the ark here for a moment. The focus was on the one who dwelt there. Now understand, there was this box, and this particular box, roughly a meter, if you will, in length, and about a half a meter in depth, had in it the broken law, a bowl of manna, and Aaron's rod that had budded. And in that broken law, covered in the box, above it was this pure gold seat that once a year was covered in blood. And God called that the Bema. The Bema 
seat, or if you will, we call it the mercy seat. That particular seat was where God was to sit. That was his throne, at least on earth. Between two cherubim. Now, cherubim is plural. Cherub is a singular. So if you will, it's between two, we might say angels or whatever the case is, but an angel is an occupation, not a species. And I think, where did we see two angels? Well, actually, you don't have to go back to just a few chapters in Genesis, actually to chapter 3, and you realize when Adam and Eve were removed from the garden of Eden, God placed two angels to guard that entrance. And I would always think where two angels were, that beyond them would be, would be the Lord, that place of intimacy again with God. And I find that fascinating because the next time you start to see them, you see them either in judgment or you see them in welcome. For instance, when Mary Magdalene peeks into the tomb and looks, she sees one angel at the foot and one angel at the head and between them, a bloody seat. I find that interesting because here, what you would find is one angel at, one, at the foot, one angel at the head and in between a bloody seat, a place where God was to dwell. Now, though that be the case, David's heart is right, but his route is wrong. Verse 3 says, So he set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the son of Abinadab, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And here becomes our problem. Now it's important to note, first of all, God had a very clear way for which the ark was to be carried. The ark was not to be carried in a cart. The ark was to be carried upon the shoulders of of the priests, specific priests that God himself would ordain. That's number seven, nine, by the way, that he makes that really clear. He, from the beginning of it, understand God had this thing made with rings on the sides. And some of you remember back when we actually went through those things in Exodus, where we actually built mock-ups of every one of the items that we saw there. As I'm sure the people at the church that actually owned the church wondered what in the world these things were, except one person. Several of them were like, what in the world is this? Except one person who apparently had read their Old Testament and said, is that the Ark of the Covenant? I'm like, yeah. And, they're like, and their answer was, it looks a lot different than the one in the in the Indiana Jones movie. So that was interesting. But in that particular box, there were rings, and in those rings were two poles, which has to look really odd now for this big box with the two ring, or the four rings and the two poles to be sticking out of it, being carried now on a cart. See, God in a specific way, because God never, hear me on this, God never intended for his presence to be carried out by some form of cart by some form of program, by some form of impersonal thing that's to get God from one place to another. It was always to come upon the shoulders of the people he's ordained as priests. See, the presence of the Lord was supposed to be carried by God's people. Not an, in, not an indifferent thing, that had an inanimate object that had no life in it whatsoever. And we would love that. We would love to say, well, if we could just kind of create a commercial or, or if you pardon me for saying, or just a, a ticket or a slide or a tract or something and just hand it to people. No, no doubt God's word never returns empty and his gospel is still the power of salvation. But if people need to see the presence of the Lord, chances are they're not going to see it on a piece of paper. And they're not going to just see it in a program. The way that they see it is they're going to see it on people. Not just people, but priests. And when we get to the book of Revelation, what's going to become clear is that God really ordained us to be priests. 
All a priest is in a simplest sense is someone who represents God to man and man to God. We take the, the, the concerns of the people and we bring them to God in prayer. And we take the love of God and we bring it to people in service and in preaching and in teaching. So understand, he's called you to be a priest. And as he's called you to be a priest, it is God's presence that's to be borne upon your shoulders. That's, by the way, the yoke that is easy and the burden that is light. So why in the world would David do this? Why would David put this thing on a new cart? Well, let me just say in simple sense, back in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7, it's clear why. I mean, the last time we really saw the ark out anywhere was in a battle again with the Philistines. And it was before the time of Saul when the people in battle were losing and they said, you know what the problem is? We don't have the ark of God. We need to bring it and it will save us. Now, please hear me on this. The moment your walk with God becomes an it, that's what your Christianity is about. You're in trouble. Because what that's saying is that you've lost the person for some program or some position or some politic instead of really being intimate with the living God. Man, imagine if marriage was about an it and not about the person you're married to. I can't see anyone wanting to be married without seeing the beauty of the relationship you have with your spouse. And so when they're saying, let's bring the ark of God, it will save us. It's the same thing that some people do saying, oh, the devil can't touch me. I'm wearing a crucifix. Or you don't understand. I've got this tattoo on me that says devil go away. Or I've shaken my special thing. Or, but then the same kind of people will break a glass and think they have seven years bad luck. So I'm not too sure which cancels out which at that point. And if it's, if it's something that holds oil, then it's 14 years. And if it's a mirror, it's even worse. I mean, it's amazing how that plays out. So please hear me in this. When the ark was captured, it was captured by the Philistines who had no real concept of God. God's not going to let his ark, some emblem, be the secret. Because it's never about an it. So you know those old classic horror films where whatever the monster is comes and they pull out a cross and they're like, oh, and it's like, like somehow the cross is going to scare them away. God's like, stop that. That's nonsense. The power is in the person. So with that in mind, the Philistines take this thing and when they take it, it goes on tour all five of the major cities of the Philistines and every place it goes, the people are struck with hemorrhoids and rats. I'm not making this stuff up. Read it for yourself. First Samuel four to seven. And ultimately the, the Philistines are like, what in the world are we going to do with this thing? Our life's really miserable. We have to get rid of this thing. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a little bit of a test here. We're going to take two cows that are milk cows. In other words, what that means is they've given birth and as they're given birth, their natural maternal instinct would be to be with their calves. But we're going to take these two, these, two, uh, these two cows, these heifers, these milk cows, and we're going to strap them to a burden, to a new cart. And they make clear a new cart, by the way. And then we're going to take this ark thing and we're going to put it on this box. And we're going to put it on the back of this new cart. And we're going to give an offering. Five golden rats and five golden hemorrhoids. And we're going to put them in a little jar, a little, a little treasure chest, if you will. And we'll put that beside their box. And then we'll let the cows loose. And if the cows actually just kind of go straight to Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, go straight to Israel, then we'll know that their God did this to us. 
But if they somehow really don't, I mean, that would be very contrary to their nature. Their nature would be to go to be with their calves. But if they just kind of act like cows, like we would expect, well, then we'll kind of know that somehow this was really our dumb bad luck. And we all just happened to get hemorrhoids at the same time. And these rats just showed up every time the ark was here. It was just a weird coincidence. So they strapped the cart on these two uh, new milk cows. And the milk cows go straight into Israel. As they go straight into Israel, the Philistines know. Okay, this was really their God. He's not to be trifled with. But that's the way the ark came back from the world into Israel. And from that point on, by the way, for what it's worth, it tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, the men of Kirith Yerim came and took the ark of God, of the Lord, brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And so it was that the ark remained in Kirith Yerim for a long time. It was actually there 20 years. And what that tells us is that this Abinadab that they're going to get it to, it's actually stayed there this whole time. Never during the reign of Saul at any point does that ark get taken out. Once during a battle, actually, and I believe it was in First Samuel 14, the Philistines were encroaching again. And Saul's like, go get the ark. And then he's like, and then the battle just became too close. And he's like, forget it, forget it. Withdraw your hand is the term he uses. But he's like, forget it. We need to fight. Now, all of that to say this. That this Abinadab that we're going to read, they're going to take it from. Well, that's all the way back again in First Samuel 7 when it comes back. But what happened is, is that David is just moving it the way the last time he saw it moved. He's moving it the way he saw the world move it. And here becomes our problem. You see, again, God had a very specific way of moving it. And as God had a specific way of moving it, he also had specific people to move it. People he had ordained to be priests. And it was to be upon their shoulders. There was no other way. You didn't stick in the back of a pickup truck. You didn't throw it on one of those cool rickshaws. You didn't put it in some. You just didn't put it on a cool skateboard and try to skate it down the way. There was only one way to carry it, and God made that really clear. And he had already written in his book, and that book was already taken care of. It was in the hands of kings. But David didn't do it that way. What David did, in the simplest sense, is he watched the world, and he did what the world does. Now hear me on this. The church has and will always seem to be busy doing this. About 20 years ago, the church moved to this thing called the seeker-friendly movement. And what that meant was is that we're going to try to make it easy for somebody who's seeking to find God to find him. There's, only a, there's one really serious problem with that. And that it tells us in Romans chapters 2 and 3 that nobody seeks after God. Now they're seeking after the things of God. They're seeking after peace, love, and joy, and purpose, and importance. Uh, you know, no doubt they're searching, they're searching those things. But actually looking for God, they're not doing that. God made that clear. But because of that, what happened is, is you keep taking that to its next and its next. And what happened is the church started actually meeting with if you will, with business leaders, guys that seem to have in the side of the world very successful businesses. And in those businesses, they said, well, tell us what it takes to have a successful business. And of course, they started saying things like you need to be relevant. You need to be inoffensive. You need to be in a place where you actually convince the people that they need the product you have. And the truest success then will be that you are the leader over all these people. You have the most clients and that people somehow associate the basic product with your brand, Christianity equals Calvary Chapel. Christianity equals Catholicism. Christianity equals Jesus. You know, that's kind of the idea. And the church bought into it. 
So now what we have is church growth seminars on how to grow a church, not how to grow Christians, not how to get the gospel out, how to be inoffensive and how to be relevant and how to get as many people into your church as possible so that in the end of it all, someone can look and go, clearly you're successful because look at how many people go to your church. So let's do demographic surveys. Now look, I'm not against these things for their own sake, but I'm against them when the whole purpose is to let the world dictate how you're supposed to bring the presence of God to people because it's exactly what David does here and it doesn't turn out well for him, does it? And if you think about it, what he's doing is he's bringing the ark of God back without him actually or without the priests personally taking it. But it takes it beyond that. So, so if you follow me on that, the rest of it develops even more intimately. Because what we have are a bunch of people that God lists and he names them personally and not just Abinadab. We know him again from 1 Samuel 7. But we also read about this guy and his kids, right? We read about a guy named Abinadab that's a generous father, but we read about a guy named Utsa and Ahio. And this is where it really, to me, really starts to develop heavy. These are the two guys we know from this text are going to drive the ark. Did you see that there? Someone's got to drive the cows. They've got to drive the oxen. Uh, for what it's worth, Ahio means my strength, strong, or my security. Ahio means brotherly or welcoming or, be- or friend befriending. So I have these two people, my strength and befriending, that are actually the ones now driving the ark instead of it being on the shoulders of priests. And I remind you, the end result of this is going to be death, right? We're aware of that. We've already read the text enough to know that. So what you have here is other people now driving this instead of God driving it. And instead of God's presence driving this thing, what you have is somebody that's trying to be friendly. And what we're going to read is he's the one in the front is going to be Mr. Friendly, befriending. And then you've got strength, who, or my strength, who's walking beside the thing. He's going to make sure that the ark doesn't fall over. And can I just say this? Then in our own lives, when you forsake God's truth to try to actually get God's presence here some other way, you'll probably do it one of two ways. You'll do it out of the motivation of doing it out of your own strength or of befriending the wrong people. A lot of reasons why the church tries to befriend the world, to be honest, is because of the, it just does, doesn't want enemies with the world. But there's a problem with that. James taught us, by the way, in the, in the book of James, he taught us that to be friends with the world is to make yourself an enemy of God. Do you realize how harsh that is? When all you really want is for the world to like you, God's like, look, at the world hates me. Why in the world would you think I'd be really happy about you being a friend of the world? But by doing that, sacrificing the truth to do it. God says, I'm not into that at all. And we certainly see that here. So on one side you have, let's just befriend everyone. Let's just invite everyone into the church. Come as you are. Stay as you are. Just, you know, God accepts everyone just the way they are. Let me just say this. You can come as you are. That's not the problem. It's just that the goal is for you to leave as he is, not as we are. Because otherwise, we make ourselves the Lord and we make Jesus just serve us. And God's not into that either. And so we get to this point where it's like, look, it, we just want to invite everyone in. It doesn't matter what your affiliation is and how you think. And it doesn't matter if your whole lifestyle completely is opposite of what God would want for you. Just come and be who you are and don't change. Because in the end of it all, if I can get you all in my church, well, then someone's going to think I'm really successful, right? 
But let me tell you who doesn't think I'm successful at that point, and that's God. That'd be like me opening up a hotel, I'm sorry, a hospital, and me opening up a hospital and then saying, come as you are, come as sick and whatever kind of sick, though you don't believe it's a sickness, though you don't believe it's a problem, come as you are and then just stay as you are because we just accept everyone for who they are. The bottom line is you would want to go to a hospital to get well. I don't know anyone that just goes to the hospital because they like the food or the beds are comfortable or because they get free channels there. No doubt we go there to get well. And we come into the church and we think, well, God should just accept me for who I am. Well, God will take you for who you are. But he wants to transform you and make you well. Make you whole. Make you complete. And you're not going to get that by placing those demands. So with that in mind, this is what we read. And again, we're going to, we're going to develop that. But it says again in verse 3. And I find it interesting that it's a new cart again. Because this is what the church gets really guilty of. And we can do it as Christians, can't we? We get to this point where what we're trying to do is get the new thing. We've got to get the new thing. Well, what's the new thing in the, church, in, the, in the world? So, hey, look, at, I'm not, hey, look, if you're kind of like a Pokemon Go guy, then go ahead and Pokemon Go and get, bring Jesus into it. But when the church decides that that's going to be their primary focus and then not bring Jesus in, well, that doesn't sound like church anymore. Hey, look, at, do what you do. But bring, let Jesus take it over so that it becomes a ministry. There's the beauty in it. And whatever that thing is, but the only reason I say that is that was one of the fads. Remember that kind of came and went? I think it's gone. Has it gone for the most part? Now, who knows what the next thing's going to be? Maybe it'll be VR or whatever the case is. But it's going to be something. And the church will try to, you know, if the church can engage it with Jesus, I'm all about it. But if what the church is really trying to do is just try to be like it, well, we're going to look goofy for good reason. So, as it's the case, it says they brought it, verse 4, out of the house of Abinadab was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. Ahio, remember that's Mr. Friendly, went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord and all kinds of instruments of firwood, of harp, stringed instruments, of tambourine systems and cymbals. Now what that tells me is there's a whole lot of worship going on here. This is the biggest worship concert Israel has really known in a long time. The ark of God, the presence of God is on the move and a lot of music's involved, no doubt. Until we get to verse 6. And when they came to Nachun, try that word, Nachun. That's a fun one, isn't it? Try it again, Nachun. Yeah, see, now you sound all Hebrew, Nachun. Nachun, by the way, it's actually a beautiful word. Nachun means to be rendered sure or to be established. I love that, that that's where this takes place. And it's not just that it was at Nachun's place, that place where it's established, it's sure. It's clear, it's unchanging, it's a landmark, but it's a threshing floor. <laughs> What's ironic is a threshing floor should be a very flat surface, a strange place for an oxen to stumble. It would be the least likely place, I would think, for a, an oxen to stumble. It's flat, it's on a plane, but it's the place where you break up the chaff, the part you don't eat, the straw, if you will for the pieces you do, and then you throw that threshing fork into the air, and as you do, the wind blows away the straw because it's light, but the food part comes and falls back down in front of you so you can actually eat it. So it's the place that breaks off the unnecessary stuff for the real meat, is the idea. And it's a place that's called established, or proven sure, or rendered sure, and here the oxen stumbles. Now, for what it's worth, in the book of Proverbs, and I believe it's 
chapter 14, verse 4. I used to use that verse a lot in regards to youth pastors because it says, when the oxen are gone, the stall is clean. But much work is done by a mighty ox. Now, the idea is simple. You want to get a lot of work done, you're going to need an ox. An ox is a symbol of good, hard work. But you bring around an ox and work does get done, it's also going to get really messy. Oxen are really big poop machines. And in the same way, often you find that you know this, if you really want to get work done, you might actually invite a couple people that are kind of strong as an ox that may help you, but it may get a little messy if you do that. That's kind of the idea. But oxen, in a simple sense, are actually kind of a symbol for hard work. And here becomes our problem. That the symbol of hard work stumbled. Now we've got Mr. Friendly and we've got Mr. Strong. And the symbol of our hard work trips up at that which is rendered sure and established. That which is immovable. That which is a landmark. And that thing, and let me just say it this way, that the symbol of my own work and strength will always stumble at the established word of God if I don't let God set the truth. And here is my problem. I'm trying to do the right thing. But as James tells me in James 4, 4, friendship with the world is is enmity with God. God just doesn't want that. And I'll tell you why. God really wants us to worship in truth and truly worship. That's what he wants. He tells us that, by the way, in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, it says that the Father is seeking those. Now notice it doesn't just say he's waiting for it to come upon it. He's actively looking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. What God really, really wants is to find you doing both. And the church can do one or the other pretty well. We can worship in truth, and what that means is we do it this way. We want to make sure we do it right. But you can do it so right, you're dead right, and there's no you involved in it anymore. But to worship in spirit, he doesn't see worship in the spirit. We like to add that so it's some kind of esoteric experience. You know, I've got to have the chills, and I've got to feel the Holy Ghost, and I've got this kind of thing. But it says worship in spirit. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman who does all the practices of Judaism, but doesn't even know why she does them. For you to worship in spirit means you've got to be involved in it. Your heart's got to be in it, is the simplest sense. Worship with your heart, man. When you be in it. Because if you're just kind of... I mean, how goofy that must look to God. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And I'll see how great, great is our God. Can you imagine God looking at that and going, huh, well, if that really is the case, tell your, tell your face. Because your face doesn't seem to have gotten the memo. Or... I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my soul. God's like, well, then get it out. Clearly it's stuck somewhere. See what I mean? I mean, here's the crazy part. You can, you know, the same people who are like, look at, we're British. We don't do that. I've seen some of you at football matches or even watching it on television. Don't tell me you ain't got it in you. 
You watch the same people are like, oh, look, we're much too refined for that. They're like, oh, Egalet. And they're like singing for like hours and a goal like lasts 25 minutes because you probably won't get another one for 20 minutes. But I mean, I mean, it's like it becomes like, oh, my goodness. But then it's like, yeah, Jesus, save my Jesus, save my soul. And I'm, like, I'm not trying to diss football. I'm trying to diss the fact that if we're going to go nuts over that, but we won't go nuts over being saved, where in the world are we? A guy looks and he goes, listen, I want you to be involved. Look, at, I want you to worship in truth, but I want you to truly worship too. I want to see you really at it. Now, that doesn't mean, look, at, if you're not the type, look, if you're not a David type where you're not going to dance and so forth, but for some people that really is who they are, then go for it. Let it be something that wells up and kind of ignites you. Because the bottom line is, David here, by the way, he is definitely worshiping in spirit. Oh, he's all in it. But there's just no truth. There's the danger. What happens? But there are other places where you'll find people like, for instance, the Ephesian church, by the way, in Revelation 2. Oh, they're all about truth. But they've left their first love. Clearly, there's no worship in spirit there. It tells us, by the way, that though the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's John 1.14 and John 1.17. And it tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What would it be like if an unbeliever came in and saw us doing both? I mean, let's face it, there are those where it's like the music starts and it's like pandemonium. Things bust loose. People are running laps. People are slapping each other. They've got the warrior spigot spirit. Some spigot too, maybe. And they're like over here, there's got that, like the chicken spirit and they're like clucking over here and there's a guy barking on this side and somebody's vibrating over here. And I'm not trying to diss that. The whole point is, if someone walks in and goes, whoa, so this is what happens when the spirit gets a hold of people as they just turn into mental cases. And again, I'm not trying to diss it, but again, God says, look, there needs to be some order to this because this is all about saving people and celebrating being saved because there needs to be spirit but there needs to be truth and there is a truth staring David in the face that this is how the ark is taken but instead he's got this symbol of his own work pulling this thing hoping that somehow this is how we can get this thing to Jerusalem and meanwhile, Mr. Friendly's out in the front. David's dancing and music's everywhere, if you will. And his music's, I mean, this is a huge thing. And man, people are feeling it. They are feeling it. But nothing crushes a worship service like somebody dying in the middle of it. So we read in verse 7, again, the ox stumbled. The guy that's name is Mr. Strength has to reprop up the ark. And let me just say, if you've got a God, you have to reprop up what's clear is you have the wrong one. It says, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Utsda. I remember that, remember that means my strength. And God struck him there for his error and he died before the ark of God. And then we read in verse 8, David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak. And so we see two angers here. But let me make clear, these are two different words altogether. In the first case, we read God's anger for me to try to drive God's presence in my own strength, trying to f- start with fellowship with the things in front of me first. Well, that particular word's the word af. Try that word, af. I try it like this way, af. The word literally means nostril flare. There are certain people, you know this. There's some of you that I know when you get really frustrated, your nostrils flare. You're like, Like, that's where you see it first. 
For some people, it's the eyebrows. For some people, it's the crazy eyes. But for some people, it's the nostrils. You think of a bull, which is a classic good thing for here because we have oxen. But you have that. Well, that's the term for God here. He's just he's just had it. And what's really sad is all this really great stuff is happening. But it's also this really sad thing because the most important thing is the presence of God in this. Not the song. That's not the most important thing. It's not how great the song is being played. It's not how many people are there. The important thing is how is the presence of God being communicated? Isn't that really the point here? And that's the one thing that's wrong. God never said, I hate your music or that your lyrics are terrible or that doesn't even rhyme. Come on. Or, or any of that. He's that's goofy meter or really you're going to play it like that or that key's too high. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't say, well, I don't know about this dancing thing. That looks kind of weird or what well, you guys, is that crumping? I mean, he doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't say, wait a minute, shouldn't there be more people from Asher here? You know, I, I think if we had a few more people, this would really be kicking. You know, he doesn't say anything like that. The whole point was the music may be fine. The dancing may be fine. The people's gap. People gathering in mass, that may be fine. There's at least 30 grand, and that's just Judah, and that's one tribe. And yet in all of this, there may be about a couple million people involved in this experience. Imagine two million people gathered together to move the ark of God, and it's like the biggest worship service you ever saw, and some guy dies in the middle of it because the most important thing, the presence of God, is actually missing the right, it's, it's not the right way. We're trying to do it through the wrong way. Trying to do it through the world's ways. So, David's word, though, for anger is not this af, nostril flare. The word there is the word charaf. Could you try the word charaf? Charaf. They said if you do it and where you spit and you're probably doing it right. Charaf means to grow hot. It means to grieve. It means to jealous. In other words, it's that moment where you, in other words, David kind of freaked out. And I would, if I thought I was doing it all right, and yet somebody just dies in front of me because I really was doing the most important thing wrong. Could you imagine? It's like you get a really gifted speaker to really speak. You get a really gifted team to play some amazing songs. And we feel the song, and we feel the moment, and we get the right lighting, and we get the right lasers, and we get the right everything. And everyone's just like, yeah. That was awesome. Really feel it. But really, when it came down to who God really is and how we really transfer that to the gospel upon the shoulders of priests, that's not happening. So you're like, well, if you really want to receive God, here's the 15 steps you have to take. And here's the little program you have to get in. And all this. Look at, I'm not against something that brings people to Jesus. But you better, boy, if somebody comes and says, what do I need to do to receive Jesus? How quick is that for you? If they're going to die in one minute, could you lead them to Jesus in that minute? Because it is as quick as if you're willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what the Bible says. So now David's freaked out and he says, well, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So what happened is, well, David's not going to move the ark now. If this thing's killing people, why do you want that in your house? So it tells us here, notice it says in verse 10, David would not move the, move the ark of God with him to the city of David. So David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Do you see that, everyone? Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, for what it's worth, in 1 Chronicles 16.5, there is a guy named Obed-Edom. And he is a Levite. He's one of the Levites that is going to be incorporated. And some people like to patch these two guys together. I have a real problem with that. Because this guy, we do not read Obed-Edom, the Levite, do we? 
We read, Obed-Edom, the what? Oh, come on, give it to me. The what? The Gittite. So what is a Gittite? It's not like, oh, no, don't, 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 Gittite. Oh, that's not it at all. In Joshua, chapter 13, verse 3, we read that there were five lords of the Philistines, the Gazaites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, and the Gittites, and the Akronites. Remember those five places that were affected, by the way, by the ark when it went around? So let me ask you, a Gazaite, where do you think they're from? Gaza, that was good. An Ashdodite, where do you think they're from? Ashdod, good. How about an Ashkelonite, where do you think they're from? Ashkelon, probably not places you're as familiar with. How about an Ekronite? Where do you think an Ekronite is from? Ekron. So where is a Gittite from? Git? Well, close. In First Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5, it says, There was war against the Philistines. And Elnathan, the son of Yair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Where was Goliath from? Does anyone remember? He was the champion from Gath. A Gittite is someone from Gath. A Gittite is someone from Goliath's hood. And the reason I say that is it's fairly likely what we're looking at here is a guy that actually isn't Jewish at all. He's actually a Philistine. So David goes, I can't take the ark of this you know, back into my place, it's killing people. Let's stick it in the house of that Philistine guy. That's kind of a fun thought, isn't it? And it says that the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. Obed-Edom, by the way, Edom means red or ruddy, reddish. Obed means servant. So it means, in a simple sense, ruddy servant. Why is that important? Because David, at the beginning of his life, when he was first introduced, that's actually how he was introduced. He was the one who followed the sheep. And we read in 1 Samuel 16:2, and I believe in 17:42, he was ruddy, reddish. He had bright eyes and he was good looking. Now, whether that means he was a ginger-haired fella and he looked kind of like Ed Sheeran, or whether that just meant that he had those... You ever see those people and they like guys and they have like those like, you know, big rougey cheeks? It's like they're always just red right here. And when they get really warm, it's like Rudolph the red-cheeked reindeer. They're like really bright red. I don't know whether that's the case for David either. I mean, he was Jewish, so he had that kind of olive skin. Either way, what God said is he was a good-looking guy, and he was a reddish. He was a reddish servant. And this goes into the house of a person named Reddish Servant. I think that's interesting. I wonder if that reminded David of where he came from. And so it was told in verse 12, was told the king, and it says, The king has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up to the ark of God, and he brought it from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. But the second time it's going to be different. And we're almost done here, so don't lose me, please. Hear me on this. The one thing David ever really wanted was to just dwell with God. You're aware of that. Remember in Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, in Psalm 23, 6, it says, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's what David really wanted. In Psalm 27, he said, One thing I've desired of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's what David wanted. So it doesn't surprise me that what David really wants is just to get God to go and move in with him if he can't move in with God. So he brings it there now, but things are going to be a little different this time. Verse 13, it says, So it was 
to those bearing the ark of the Lord. Do you notice now they're carrying it on their shoulders like they should? Had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Now you can miss this. But why six paces? Because in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, and we get it also in Second Chronicles 9, 18 and 19, that there were six steps to a king's throne. So they weren't going to take six steps without sacrificing. And I think that's really interesting. It's like we don't even want to go and approach the throne of God, if you will, without sacrificing. The interesting thing is, what did they sacrifice? Yeah, they sacrificed the oxen. Remember those oxen that were symbols of work before carrying it? Now they're actually sacrificing them. They're going, I'm laying down my works, God, because really you're the king, not me. I think that's beautiful. In our last few verses, what we find is, even in the second worship service, if you will, one done in truth, that does not mean that everybody there is going to enjoy it. There's still death in the camp. It's just a different kind. Verse 14 says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. Do you think that David was worshiping in spirit? Do you think David's heart was in it? I kind of say, yeah. David was. And of course, we read that he's dancing in a linen ephod. By the way, the natural thing is people are like, that's just kind of today. That would be like David dancing in his underwear. But really what it is, it's the undergarment that a priest also wears. It's the one thing that David would have in common with a priest in their outfits. And And I think really David never really wanted to be a king. I think he just wanted to be a priest. He just wanted to be with God. And just You ever have that time in your life? Maybe it's all your life. I hope it is. But you know where you're just like, God, I just want to be with you. Wouldn't it be really cool if we just were with each other forever? God's like, yeah, that's your future. Just want to let you know that. And David's dancing with all of his might in his linen ephod. And the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a trumpet. There's still music going on. They're still announcing. But... As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through the window, saw David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she just hated it. Not just it. She despised what? According to verse 16, what did she despise? She despised him. She hated him in her heart. Now hear me, this is our last thing, and we're going to get ready for prayer here. I remind you, Michal is Saul's daughter. She is the remnant of Saul. Now think about that in our own lives. Remember we've talked about Saul being the wrong guy on the throne and how he had to step down so David, the proper king, could take the throne? To be on the throne like it should be in our lives, where we let Jesus in our own lives be the Lord of our lives and not just Savior, where we try to tell him what to do, but we go get the wrong guy off the throne and let Jesus take the proper throne. Well, there's always, remember how we said that there were times where, where elements of Saul, like Saul's son, would be raised up, the man we call, whose name is Man of Shame. And now that guy rose up to try to get back off on the throne, uh, in, to try to get David off the throne and not let him have all of your life. Well, understand, even here now that all of Israel belongs to David. David's dominion is now covering all of Israel from Dan and then far north to Beersheba in the south. And yet in all of that, there's still a remnant of Saul. And I don't know about you, but for me, there still is in my life too. There's still a remnant of that old guy in me. Look at, I gave my life to Christ in 1984. Just by a show of hands, just to freak me out. How many of you weren't even born in 1984? Is it kind of a risk here? You know, actually what's scary is, that's all of you. Everybody in this room was born after I was saved. Which means I was born again before any of you were born the first time. 
And I just, the only reason I say that isn't because, check it out, I'm old, is because in the end of it all, still at this age in my life, there's still telltale, these little traces of the Saul in my life that I love gone. I'd love the old guy to just be dead and buried like God, like God did without any memory of him whatsoever. So what does it look like as you grow in the Lord and you've given everything to the Lord? How does that trace of that old person in you still prop up? How does he still pop up? Now look, at I get the idea. We're going to try to move God's presence by the world's ways. And when that happens, the symbol of my work, and I've got strength in befriending the wrong people, and I get to that place where you separate what's unnecessary at a place where it's established. And that's always going to be the place that's going to trip you up when you're really trying to move God the wrong way. And in, you know, verses, let God move you. And yet in all of that, I get to this place and here I am. I'm going, all right, God, I'm going to worship you now. I'm going to worship you with everything, but I want it to be right. I want to, I want to truly worship you in spirit, but I also want to, to worship you in truth and do it the way you would want. I don't want to just do stuff and hope you like it. I'm not going to make you up or say, this is the way it should be. I'm going to study you in your word and go, this is what's right. And here I am. I'm all yours now, God. And I, I, look at, I'm not trying to elevate myself. I'm just down to a linen ephod. And I'm just like, God, I just want to be a priest. I just want it to be you and me. Wouldn't that be awesome? And somewhere in all of that, the trace of that old me props up and goes, what an idiot you look like at a moment like that. Oh, how you embarrass me at a moment like this. Look at how you are embarrassing me. There you are, tears streaming down your face. Your hands are raised. You're singing and you're just all smiles. Don't you realize what kind of fool you look? Now, who do you think is that's saying that? It's that remnant of Saul that still kind of sticks around. That says, ah... You will make a fool of yourself, or you are making a fool of yourself. But boy, did you make a fool of yourself in that. Oh, did the king. Don't you realize who you're supposed to be? Don't you realize how cool you are in the sight of people? Don't you realize how many people wish they could be you? And look at what you're doing. You're blowing everything. Nobody wants to be you when you're going to act like that. And here you are going, I was just having such a great time with God. There I was. I didn't care if I danced or whirled or twirled, and I don't care whether people thought it was stupid or the moves were outdated. I just wanted to love God, and, and God seemed to be enjoying it. So why in the world am I actually taking a vote and allowing you into this? Who decided that I should invite Simon Cowell into my performance now? Oh, boy, did you embarrass? You embarrassed? Oh, man, do you realize how stupid you look before people? And that's what we see here. David offered burnt offerings. That's, remember, I remind you, that's total surrender. And peace offering, which means I want to give and bless you because I'm right with God. Isn't that what a peace offering is? I have peace with God, and so I want to bless you. And notice, David gives everyone food. He's like, hey, everybody, because God has so blessed me and because I'm so full and because, hear me on this, because I'm so satisfied, I just want to give to you now because I don't need to hoard all of this stuff. It's not, I don't need it. I'm satisfied with God. Just take it, man. Be blessed. Be blessed with me. <coughs> Excuse me. And David gets home from this. And David, and notice what it says, that David went home to bless his family. David is so overflowing with the joy of the Lord. And he's so satisfied in God. And he's just like, man, that was right. That was so right. Man, it was so right on. Right with God. It was totally in truth. And it was just like, Man, it just feels good to let loose like that with God. And then he gets home. He's like, I just can't wait to bless my family. I can't wait to be, hey, you guys, let me just say, 
I just had the most wonderful time with God, and I wanted to spill it on you now. And he can't even get past the door. And there is this remnant of Saul saying, man, you embarrassed us. It says in verse 20 that David returned to bless his house. Michal, the daughter of Saul, came to meet David. And she said, how glorious was the king of Israel today uncovering himself in the eyes of his maids and servants as one of those base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Notice what she says. Don't miss this. This is so important, beloved. Because what she says is, don't you realize that everyone else around you was making fun of you when you weren't looking? Don't you realize that, that you thought you were having this great time, but everyone else around you thought you were a dork for it. They thought you were a doofus for it. And what the enemy loves to do is get you so consumed in yourself, you're actually afraid to love God like you should. Because you're like, man, if I, what if I really let God get a hold of me? Maybe I'll cry. What will my friends think? Man, if they're your real friends... They would actually just be thankful that you're having an encounter with God, wouldn't they? If they're real friends. Now, David's response, by the way, is, is my prayer that'll be ours. When the enemy tries to play this and throw the old Saul at you one more time like this, in David's simplest sense, what David said is, Honey, you ain't seen nothing yet. Isn't that what he said? He said, listen, first of all, let me make really clear. The Lord put me in this position. Oh, by the way, he fired your dad and your whole household. So exactly how do you have a right to tell me what's right? You are the old life. You are not the new one. And the old life cannot dictate the new life. You have no say in this matter. Isn't that what he says? He says it kind of in that kind of like, oh, no, you didn't, right? Look at the Lord chose me instead of your father. He fired your dad, kicked your household out, and he chose me. Exactly how do you think you have a right to tell me this? But I love what he says after that. He says, you know what? I'll become even more undignified than this. Boy, if you think this is going to embarrass you, wait till you see what I have planned. He goes, and in your eyes, you may hate me more for this. Well, I guess that's a real bummer. But let me tell you what. Those people who are actually genuine servants... Notice what he says. I'll be held in honor by them. The people who really want to serve the Lord are going to go, no, that's what it really looks like. And I would rather, to be honest, have people who really serve the Lord agreeing with me than you, my old life, trying to bag on me and tell me what's wrong. Because when my old life tries to tell me that this isn't the way it plays, something needs to change, I think it's time to say, well, then I think what needs to change is you need to leave. You're done. Because I'm not going to listen to you anymore. And you know what it tells us in the last verse? Look at it. Therefore, Michal. And notice, by the way, God constantly reminds us that it's the daughter of Saul. Doesn't that make sense? Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, I don't want to get weird, but I'd like you to consider what this means. From this point on, guess what David isn't going to do with Michal? You don't have to answer that verbally, but I think you get the answer. And the idea is David's like, you know what? We're done. I'm not going to, there's no more smoochy smoochy with you, honey. We are not getting close anymore because what's clear is you are not what I'm about. Let me ask you, when that old part of Saul props back up, that could be an old friend. That could be even somebody that you really love in your heart that you really wish you could be with. And they start saying, you know what, this Jesus thing, you could do a little bit of it, but just don't go mental on it. Don't go overboard. Don't overdose on this Jesus thing. 
do you really think that's the voice of the Lord telling you that? And at that point, you're like, hmm, something's got to change. And the natural propensity, because we want to be like this, you know what, you're right, I need to really tone this down. Because if I tone this down, maybe they'll like me again. Look, do you think David could have won Michal over if David backslid? I think he might have actually been able to bring her back. But he was too in love with God to let that relationship suffer for this one that's trying to drag him away. So David's like, you know what? Don't ever expect us to be close again because we are not going to be close anymore. What's clear is I've chosen who to love. And if you ain't going to stand with it, then you ain't it. Now hear me in this. My king, the proper king here, is stepping in. He's like, all that really matters is being right with my king. Right with the, right with the God, my maker. My Lord, my God. And when that happens, every part of me wants to dance. Every part of me wants to sing. Every part of me wants to worship. And when that happens, I would expect the world to freak out over it. But too bad. It's not going to change my mind. Let me say this. What God's going to do in our fellowship, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because as we grow, we grow to know Him. We grow to know Him better. How does our heart not rise up and do something as a result of it? So as we go to the Lord in prayer, let me ask you, are you busy kind of really tempering yourself down? Not because you're kind of a mild person, but because you're just driven by a voice of the old remnant of Saul in you that just says, don't make a fool of yourself. Just stay and sit quiet, stand in the queue. Don't make waves, don't rock the boat. Versus the Lord saying, I want to transform the world and I want to use you to be part of it. If the Lord wants to use you to change the world, then you're going to probably have to get out of the queue to do that. Are you ready? Are you willing? I want to be. I want to be in that place where we're like, yeah, that was so good. Can you imagine, do we even know what it's like to actually have said, I gave everything Because when that happens, you're going to find yourself in such a state of overflow, you're going to want to share it all with everyone. But it's hard to give to others something you just don't have. And I've learned this. You cannot be infectious, contagious, if you ain't got it. But when you got it, you can be contagious. And I would love that. This God of mine sent His Son who died on a cross because he gave it all. Could you imagine people saying, oh, no, 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 stop, you're embarrassing. You're going to hang naked on a cross for people's sins? No, that should be really embarrassing. Stop embarrassing yourself. Don't rise from the dead. Can you imagine what that's going to do to people? It's going to freak them out. Stop that. But my king never backed down because he wanted me that bad. His death for my sins, full on, His resurrection to be the Lord of my life, full on. And I want to be full on for Him. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank You so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank You, Lord, that in the beginning of this, we see somebody really wanting to do right, or at least really wanting to go for it, but not going for it in truth. But I thank You that when David did get the truth, He didn't sacrifice the Spirit to do that. 
that David worshipped you in spirit and in truth. And even in doing that, someone dear to him, his wife, would flip out on him like that. But thank you for reminding me and reminding me and reminding me she was the daughter of Saul. And Lord, and I know in our own lives, our old life, the person we once were before we came to you, can prop up and try to keep us from being full on for you to step and walk out in faith and to do what you call us to. And people tell us, stop talking about Jesus. Stop rocking the boat. Stop giving people a choice to receive him. And we don't want to make everyone angry, but we really want to see them transformed and just remind us who it is we really serve. I think of Paul that says that if I really wanted to be a man pleaser, I would never be a servant of God. So Lord, I pray that we would really want to please, we would be God pleasers. And we'd learn what it's like to dance in your, in your pleasure, to take pleasure in your pleasure. Lord, where we're trying to get something happening by some form of motive, some form of motion that really isn't really upon our own shoulders, make us the priests you call us to be. And then may your presence be evident that the people in our own lives would see such a difference and we'd be so quick to tell them it's because you, Jesus, have transformed our life, laying our old life down at the cross and giving us a brand new one now at your resurrection. So Lord, please, even tonight, set us a fire for you to be people after your own heart. And in that, Lord, let us not be in any way encumbered or restricted by the walls or the fences of this world, but rather, Lord, to walk in the clear and definitive walls that you've set up of your word where lives are changed and transformed. We're going to pick one set of walls or the other. And I choose yours, yours, God, where it's safe and healthy and whole, Lord. And let that be the case. And Lord, I don't want to be an Utza, Lord, where my own strength is trying to do this. And I also don't want to be a Michal, somebody who is just trying to temper this whole thing down and get it my way. Uh, someone whose name even means who is like God. And I just pray, God, rather that my heart and mind would be so yours to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength that I can't help but overflow. And in that, Lord, in total surrender like that burnt sacrifice, I can't help but have a peace offering where now I want to share all you've given me with everyone else so that, God, that I could be the blessing you call me to be. So, Lord, here I am. I am yours. Use me, I pray.